Can everybody open up their Bibles to today's scripture reading? It's from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. By grace through faith, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. Good afternoon, New Hope. It's good, very good to see all of you. It's good to be with you on this brisk spring day and, uh, and worship together. I want to invite you to pray with me before we get started. And I also just want to take a, a moment, many of you already know about this, but I just want to take a moment to thank God and praise God for the birth of little Olivia Unhe Kim, who was born on Wednesday. And um, Let's praise God for that gift of life to, to David and Jen, and let's pray for David and Jen and for little Olivia, that they would um, be encouraged as they raise her, and that she would be healthy and strong, and that she would grow up to love the Lord. Um, I want to invite you to pray with me now. Our Father, we thank you so much for the gift of life. We thank you that you are the one who gives new life in Christ. You are also the one who gives us life, physical life. Lord, you have blessed many of us with families, and we, we thank you for that. And we thank you for this most recent addition to the, the family that is New Hope Fellowship. Lord, you heard our prayers and the prayers of David and Jen, and you responded faithfully as you always do. And we thank you for that. We praise you for little Olivia, and we ask that she would uh, sleep well and eat well and rest well and grow well, and that she would be a healthy little girl, and that she would grow to be a, a woman who loves you and serves you all of her days. And we pray for her parents, that you would encourage them and empower them, equip them to love Olivia and the, their other children as you have loved them. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we confess to you that we are needy people. We confess to you that we come in here this morning with many, many various different needs. We, many of us have encountered challenges this past week that have overwhelmed us. Some of us have been overwhelmed with fear. Some of us have been, been deeply disappointed. Others of us, Lord, have been laying aside with, with sickness Lord, we've been attacked by our enemy who seeks to discourage us and lie to us. Our own hearts have at times deceived us. Lord, we come to you in full knowledge of the fact that we need you to powerfully work in us. Lord, we want to be encouraged by you. We want to be, uh, we want to be um, 
empowered by you to live in a way that honors you. But in order for any of that to happen, we need you to move. And so we pray that you would do that by your spirit. Use your word to bring deep encouragement to us, enliven us to the truth that we believe and that we confess so that these things would not just be words that we confess, would be, but would be the, the true hope that, that our hearts are anchored in and look to in order to live. We trust you, Lord. You have always been faithful. And so we come to you in all of our need and we ask that you would reveal your power to us just as you have in the past. In Jesus' name, amen. I read online last night that uh, there was a high winds warning in effect for our area. Um, 22 mile per hour winds were being forecasted. And um, I don't know exactly, or I didn't know exactly what 22 mile per hour winds felt like. But I read the high winds warning and I thought, okay, I'll keep that in mind. Just kind of filed it away and I didn't really think much about it. But then last night while I was sleeping, I was woken up in the middle of the night by these just howling, whistling wind noises outside of our house. I could feel the, there's a tree right next to our home, and I could feel the branches kind of rubbing up against the side of the house. I could hear the, 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 the signs outside kind of moving and, and vibrating in the wind. And I thought, man, 22-mile-per-hour winds are a lot stronger than I thought. And then this morning when I left the house with my kids, I opened the screen door and the wind almost like, it felt like it was going to rip the screen door off. And we got into our car and started driving over here and I'm driving over here in my little Honda Fit and I felt like coming across the Tappan Zee Bridge, the wind was kind of moving in my car around like a matchbox car. I was trying to just keep it in the center lane. The high winds warning was issued. I read it, I heard about it, and I knew about it. But I didn't realize what it meant until I actually heard and felt and even saw the effects of the wind blowing last night into today. And it just reminded me of something that God's been reminding me a lot about recently, and that is that knowing about something is not quite the same as knowing something. That is, knowing about something is not always the same as experiencing it. Knowing about something is good, But knowing something personally and experientially is often much, much better, much, much more powerful. So at the end of Ephesians 1, which is a passage we were looking at last week, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, and he's talking to them about the power of God. And he's praying for them with regard to that power. He's asking that God would open up their eyes to see, to know him better And that God would open up their eyes to see and to know his power more fully, more deeply, experientially. He's talking about the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, in this passage that Bethany just read to us, Paul is coming to these same people and he's showing them something. He's saying the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God is working in you. Has worked in you. In fact, if you're in Christ, then you have already experienced firsthand 
this power of God. The power of God we looked at last time. The power that was able to take a dead man and raise him out of the grave. Not only that, but then bring him to a place of authority over all creation. The power that was able to set under Jesus' feet all things seen and unseen. That same power, Paul says, you, if you're in Christ, have already experienced it. Do you want to know it better? Yes. In fact, Paul's praying that these people would know it better. And we prayed last week, and we'll keep praying, that God would allow us to know this power better. We want to know this power more deeply. And yet, at the same time, we're being reminded, this power that you want to know better, remember this, you have already experienced it if you are in Christ. Yes, you've heard about it, you've read about it, but beyond that, you have felt it. (laughs) You've seen it. Don't forget that. Don't forget that you have already known this power. And here's proof that you have known this power. That's what he gives us in these verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He gives us proof that if we are in Christ, we've experienced his power. He says, look, this is who you were before Jesus Christ, before God intervened in your life. This is who you were, and this is who you are now after God has intervened in your life. Here's your pitiful condition before God powerfully stepped in. And here's your experience and your condition now after God stepped in. And when we take a look at that before-after photo, we have no choice but to say, I have known the power of God. (laughs) The power of God has worked in my life. I may be dull to it. I may have forgotten about it. I may need to be reminded of it again and again and again. But the fact remains, God has moved in resurrection power in my life. So what we should be after with God is not so much a new kind of experience as much as a wakeful awareness of what we have already experienced and an eager desire to experience more of it and the power to live in the light of it An eager expectation, even, that God would show us and reveal to us more of his power. So what I want us to do today is move through this passage, these ten verses, and I want us to see that before and after photograph. Who you were as a Christian before God intervened, and who you are now. So let's start with you and me before God stepped in. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice what Paul does here. It's really, it's really interesting. There's something here that really caught my attention and I hope it strikes you as significant, vital for you. Paul says, before God stepped into your life to bring rescue, you were dead. You were walking dead. That is, you are walking in trespasses 
and sins, that is, you're walking in violation of God's law, you were living in a way that God had called all of us not to live. That's how you once walked. And he says, you are following the, the course of this world. In a sense, the way you were living was normal. You were just living in the same way that most people in this world live. There was nothing spectacular about it necessarily. You're living a normal life. The course of this world. A couple of lines down, he says, you are simply carrying out the desires of the body, the passions of the flesh. Maybe this resonates with you. You look at your life and you say, yes, I've spent most of my, year, my life living in a normal way. I, live, I have lived in pretty much the way that the world lives. And I've also lived according to the desires of my mind, the passions of my flesh. That, that is, we don't necessarily read that as negative, right? I mean, living in the way that you want, that's pretty normal. Doing what you desire to do, pretty normal. Letting your desires direct the way in which you carry out your life sounds pretty reasonable. That is the course of this world. And yet, right in the middle between those two lines, Paul says this. He says, as you are doing that, you are actually following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. As you and I, living our lives, following the course of this world, and living in a normal way, doing what we want to do and following our desires, setting some plans and following them out, all very mundane, Paul says, actually, as you are doing that, you are actually following the prince of the power of the air. It's one of the nicknames that the Bible has for the devil. This actual personal, personal spirit. Real person. That doesn't sound so normal, does it? Doing what I desire to do sounds normal. Living in a way that's following the course of this world, that sounds... Following Satan? Wait a second. I never signed up for that. I never intentionally said, I'm going to live and follow the devil. Like you might say, I don't even know if I even believe that the devil exists. Well, Paul believes the devil exists. God knows he exists. And says that as you and I were living this dead man walking life, in sins and trespasses, you are actually following Satan. Here's why I'm pointing this out and why I'm belaboring this little point. Because for many of us, as we lived according to our desires, living in a way that's very common in our world, we thought we were free. We thought that we were doing things the way we thought best. Paul is saying, you were actually deceived. Because as you were walking in this way, living, you were actually, you were actually enslaved. Someone else was calling the shots, even though you thought you were calling the shots. And that someone else is not a trustworthy master, not a trustworthy leader. It's the devil himself. The Bible calls him the enemy. The Bible calls him the father of lies. The Bible calls him the accuser. He's the one that wants us destroyed. He hates you and he hates me as much as he hates God. So even while we were living in what we thought to be freedom, 
we were actually living enslaved to the devil. I know that's not a very popular belief in our day, but it's something that the Bible is unapologetic about. There isn't just evil, theoretically, there is evil, there is also this devil. And he's real, and he's an enemy, and he hates you, and he hates me. You know, I know that my job here is to actually preach God's word, not to talk about myself, but if you would indulge me for just, just a moment, I want to tell you just a little bit about my own experience because I can't help but think about it as I read these words. There was a, there was a point in my life in which I believed that I was absolutely free. In fact, I believed that I had finally become free because I had shed some of the things that I felt were restricting me. I'd left home to go away to college, and it was a new life for me. I got to finally make my own decisions. I got to finally do things my way. I was free to follow the desires of my heart. The things didn't go so well for me. Over the course of the next several years, I found that my life had spiraled out of control. I found that no matter how hard I tried to make very good decisions, my decisions always turned out to be terrible ones. In hindsight now, I find that I was actually following someone that I didn't realize it. I was following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I was, in fact, a son of disobedience. I had chosen to disobey God. I had chosen to follow this new master, Satan. I wouldn't have described it that way, but in hindsight, that's what I see. And so what happened as a result of that is what always happens. <laughs> Things went really bad. I found that I was eventually realized that I had become enslaved. I wouldn't have said I was enslaved to the devil, but I would have said I was enslaved to some other things. Various addictions had developed that I was unable to break. I had become a dishonest, unfaithful, disloyal person. I had become a person that I actually hated to the point where I no longer wanted to live because to live was to be this person who I really did not like. And so things for me actually reached the point where I was consistently thinking about ending my own life. In fact, I would often visit a, a local train station, and this would be stone sober. I was, I was sober. I was, thought I was in my right mind. I would stand there on the edge of this on the edge of that platform as trains came by, and I would think about whether this is the right night for me to step off onto the track. And I didn't do it. And you know why I didn't do it? Because I, I was a coward. I was fear And that's one of the things I hated about myself. I hated it. I was such a coward. And even this I could not do. In hindsight, I realized that God was, was keeping me back from doing something because even, even God, God would not allow me to follow my then master, and in my own life. God intervened. God intervened. What I realized, what I came to realize eventually, is that I was a very bad manager of my own life. I was very bad at being a king over my own life. I needed a new king. I needed someone else to step in and guide me and direct me. In fact, I needed someone to step in and rescue me, not only 
from my own bad decisions, and not only from the terrible character that I had developed, and not only from my own addictions and my own tendencies, I needed someone to ste- I needed God to step in and rescue me from his own wrath. This is what Paul says in this passage as well. He says, and you were by nature, while you're following this master, Satan, you are actually children of wrath. That is what you are in for, what you deserve, what you are bringing upon yourself is not only the destruction that comes by making bad decisions, they're actually bringing upon yourself the judgment, the wrath of a God who will one day bring justice down on you. Children of wrath. And again, I know that that's another like, not very popular concept, wrath. But I really believe that if we're going to understand and if we're really going to appreciate what God has done to save us, then we need to know what we're saved from, right? We have to think about it from time to time. Think about the fact that God saves us from his own wrath. That's what Romans 5.9 teaches us. That God loved us, yes, but his love was not just sentimental. His love was not just merciful, and it was, but it was also a holy love. It's a love that, 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 that comes to us with compassion and kindness and mercy, but it's also this love that's indignant against injustice. So that as God looked down on me as I was standing on the edge of that platform and as I was living my life the way that I wanted to live, he looked down on me with love, and at the same time he was indignant about my sin. He hated it. He hated it. And that's something that should resonate with us, shouldn't it? Even if wrath doesn't make sense to you where you're at right now, you, could, you can, the idea of being indignant with what is wrong and in, unjust, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Wouldn't we expect that God would look down at our injustices and our sins and be angry? I just read earlier today about a group, about the Boko Haram terrorist organization and how just recently once again they came into a village in Nigeria kidnapped 300 plus children they've done this repeatedly the news doesn't, we don't even hear about it children disappeared their families mourning they're, they're not knowing what in the world is happening to these kids I don't want to serve a God who can look down at that and just say no problem the God that's revealed to us in the Bible is a God who looks down on that and says, it will not stand. I will not allow this to continue. I will bring an end to this kind of injustice. And I will bring those who perpetrate this kind of injustice, held to, they will be held to account for what they've done. That's the God we serve. But of course, we can't have it two ways. If the God we serve is going to look down at that kind of injustice with anger, he's also going to look at our little injustices with anger, too, isn't he? Where do we draw the line? Terrorist attacks and kidnapping and abuse of children grieves the heart of God and it fills him with anger, no doubt. But so did my unfaithfulness and dishonesty and violence and addiction. God is a God who speaks of wrath. And yet, and yet, the thrust of this passage 
The thrust of this entire passage is not that God looked down on us as children of wrath and walked away, but he looked down on us as children of wrath and he intervened. And that's what these very next words in verse 4 communicate to us. Some people have said that these two words at the beginning of verse 4 are the most important, the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. But God, but God, you and I, just like the whole world, children of wrath, you and I, following the desires of our heart, ignoring God completely, you and I heading towards destruction, but God stepped in. These words, you know, these are words that show up throughout the Bible. If you read back through the the book of Psalms, you'll find in many instances the psalmist would write about these terrible conditions that he was experiencing. Surrounded by enemies, evil on every side, everything looked hopeless. But then he says, but you, O Lord, you, O Lord, intervened. You, O Lord, stepped in and rescued. The author of Lamentations, Jeremiah, does the same thing. He talks in Jeremiah in Lamentations 1 about the fact that there's judgment is coming down on Israel. He says, my people are guilty. Judgment is here. We're all going to die. And then he says, but, but, but you, O Lord, you've come and you've rescued You've intervened. Maybe you know this psalm. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament as far as I'm concerned. In Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, Psalm 130 looks a lot like Ephesians 2. Here we are standing under the guilt of God dead in our transgressions and sins. But you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, with you there's forgiveness. With you there's life. With you there's hope. But God is the story of any person in this room who's following Jesus. It's certainly my story. Is is that your story as well? Have you experienced the, the, the but God? God Injecting himself into your life to stop you from self-destruction, to rescue you from his own wrath. Look at at what Paul goes on to say. He's shown us that awful picture. It's really a sad photo of who we are apart from God. And then he says, look, here's who you are after God stepped in. I think the sermon gets a lot more uplifting from here on out. Look at verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Look look at the contrast there. We're dead, the walking dead, In our sins and transgressions, God comes, and what does he do? He makes us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. We were dead, and because of God's intervention, now we're alive. We, we, used, to, we, used, to, we used to sit in the seat of scoffers, the psalmist says, but now God has seated us next to Jesus. We were doing what we wanted to do, what we thought was best for us, all the while actually doing Satan's will, although we didn't realize it. Now, God says, no, now from here on out, you're going to do what I want, and then you're going to find out that it is what's best for you. You're going to follow me, and then you're going to find out that you are actually fulfilling the greatest desires of your heart, the best desires of your heart. That's been my experience, and it's been yours if you're in Christ as well. And I believe that one of the reasons Paul shows us all this is because he wants us to see that if this is you, then you have experienced the power of God. That same power that you're praying and saying, Lord, show me more of this. He's saying, yes, I will show you more of it, but I also want you to look back into your past. I want to see where you've already experienced it. You know, it's funny, if you, if you compare these verses with the verses that come right before it in, in Ephesians chapter 1, so if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, for instance, he says, this is the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and he seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then we come down to the verses we're looking at today. And what do we find? That God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul's doing there? He's saying, here's the power of God. He took Jesus out of the grave, raised him up and put him over in authority over all things. And he's saying, now look at your life, Christian. God has done this with you as well. So the same amazing display of power that we see in the resurrection and in the ascension. Theologians call it the resurrection, the ascension, and the session. That means Jesus Christ was raised, he ascended, and then he sat down. Paul is saying that same amazing power has been displayed in your life because you have been raised and you've been seated down in Christ, with Christ. And in verse 7, he says, why has he done all this? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is showing off the richness of his mercy, the immeasurable richness of his mercy. Last week we saw that God wants to display to us the immeasurable greatness of his power. The amazing thing, the amazing thing is that as God shows the immeasurable greatness of his power, at the same time, he's showing us the immeasurable richness of his mercy. They both go together. God could have shown his immeasurable, the immeasurable greatness of his power in many ways. He could have shown it by raining down wrath. He's done it before. But instead, he says, I will display towards my people, I'll display towards you, New Hope Fellowship, the immeasurable greatness of my power and the immeasurable richness of my mercy at the same time. And it comes to us in this grace 
that he gives us. This what Paul calls a gift. All of this comes as a gift. This rescue, this salvation, this love, this new life. Think about this, guys. Not only does God forgive us, already that's way more than we could have asked or imagined. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to, I'm going to put you in a place of honor and authority, seated with Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an immense, unimaginably lavish inheritance in him. You will reign alongside him. And all this is a gift. You know, I, I, I think that we can usually tell how wealthy someone is by the kinds of gifts they give. Wealthy people will normally have nice things. Very wealthy people will often give nice things especially if they are not only wealthy monetarily, but rich in love and in kindness and mercy. So if someone has a nice car, that probably means they've got a lot of money. If they can give away nice cars, what does that say about them? I see these commercials sometimes around Christmas time, um, like Lexus commercial, where a guy drives up into his driveway, and he throw, his wife comes, you know, it's like Christmas morning, she walks out like in a, in like a robe and some fuzzy slippers and he like throws her the keys and the car's got like a bow around it, you know? It always made me wonder, does anyone actually buy cars for people on Christmas? Does that happen? Have any of you ever received a brand new car on Christmas morning? I've never done that. I've never been on either end of that transaction. But I know this, I look at that guy and I'm like, man, this guy's got a lot of money. Is he gonna buy cars for all his kids too? God says, I'm going to buy cars. I'm, I'm not going to buy cars. I'm going to give you lavish gifts in order to display just how rich in mercy I am. I want the, not only you to see, I want the world to see how rich in mercy I am. How does he do this for us? He doesn't write a check. He's not like the guy who, who just you know, takes on a loan in order to get a car for his wife. He does this through the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 tells us, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So think of it this way in terms of Ephesians chapter 2. God looks at us dead in our transgressions and sins. Deserving of his wrath, children of wrath, he says. Children of disobedience, he calls us. And he says, I will place my son, my beloved son, the one who has always loved me and the one that I have loved from eternity past, the one who has always pleased me, and I will put him in your place. He will become the child of disobedience. He will become the child of wrath. He will become the one who is walking in, in, in sins and transgressions. Not that he walked in any of those sins and transgressions, but he's willing to take ours on top of himself on himself. Jesus, God says to us, I'm willing to put my son who has always pleased me in your place because you have never pleased me and you will never be able to please me in your own strength. So I give you him. And thereby shows us the richness not only of his power but of his mercy. You know, Paul says those words, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
beautiful words in, in the verses just prior to that. You know what he says to us? He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And as an ambassador of Christ myself, in a room full of many ambassadors of Christ, we want to plead with any of you who have, who have not experienced the richness of God's love, his mercy, the depth of, the, of his power. If you have not experienced this, look at this. Look at what he's willing to do for you. He's willing to take you from a place of He's willing to take you from a place in which you are destroying yourself and you're under his wrath. And he's willing to raise you up to a place of honor and acceptance and forgiveness. Not only does he have enough mercy to be willing to do that, as we've seen, he has enough power to make that happen. He has enough power to do it. To make you alive with Christ. So the plea is a clear one. Be, be reconciled to God by believing in his son. Be reconciled to God by receiving this gift of immeasurable grace and mercy that he offers. I want us, as we, as we end today, to just think about three simple takeaways from Ephesians chapter 2. Like I said before, what we're meant to see here is God's power at work in us. And what I also hope we have seen is God's immeasurable mercy towards us also in these verses. But as we, as we walk away from this, if this is the kind of power that is at work in us, and I think we have to ask then, then how do we respond to this? If, if this is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe, then how do we live in response to this? What do we do with this? I just want to give you three simple things that I think come out of the last three verses that we read in Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. And what I want us to see here is that if you have experienced this kind of power in your life, then you can live at least in these three ways, with security, with humility, and with repentance. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 8 real quick. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In other words, if you are alive in Christ today, you didn't do it. God did. Now here's why that gives us security, immense security, and why every one of us can live with a deep sense of assurance and in a place of security if we believe that. It's because if you didn't do it, then you can't undo it. If this is a gift by grace from God to you, then it can't be undone. It's astounding. We got ourselves into the problem in the first place. We've been rescued from it. We can't undo the rescue. Think in these terms. Christ cannot be unraised. Christ cannot be unseated from his place of honor and authority. So if you are in Christ, neither can you. 
Your status as a child of God cannot be revoked. We are seated with Christ, alive in Christ. And, and, and listen, guys, to know the power of God more deeply is to live in the light of that more and more and more. To live in the light of that unshakable security. Can I lose the life that God has given me? Can you, can you lose the life that God has given you in Christ? I don't know. Can Christ be unraised? I don't think he can be unraised. Nor can you lose the life that he has given you in Christ. Can I lose the place in God's kingdom that he has given me by grace? I don't know. Can Christ be unseated from the place in which he has been seated by God? No. So if I am in him, I cannot be removed from my place in that kingdom either. Now, that's not meant to put us in, a, as we're going to see in a moment, that's not meant to, to, to encourage us towards any kind of like complacency or presumption towards God. No, but it is meant, it is meant to give us a deep-seated security. It says, if the power of God has worked in and towards me to give me new life in Christ, then there's no going back. There's no undoing what God has done. Look, if it were within your power to lose what God has given you, then you would have lost it already. And I would have too. Jesus puts it this way. He puts it much more beautifully than I ever could. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What I think is beautiful about these words is that God's saying, look, if, Jesus is saying, look, if, you're, if, if you've been rescued, you've been brought into God's family, brought into God's kingdom, you can't be snatched out of it. You can't be removed from it. And it's not just based on some kind of technicality, like, hey, God signed the dotted line, it's over. It's, you're, you're, you're in. And you can't get out just the way it works out. No, he's painting it very personally. He's saying the Father has a grip on you. The Father who has loved you has enough power to hold on to you. He will not release you. His love constrains him, and his justice constrains him to hold on to you. Security. But also, if we believe, if we have experienced God's power in the way that Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, then not only can we live with security, we have to live with humility. We have to live with humility. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, for by, oh, sorry, not, this is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Everything that God's done for you, you can't boast about any of it. There's no boasting allowed. It's, it's, it, it's unreasonable and incongruent. It makes no sense for you to boast. In fact, God is communicating to us that it took the very power of God to save you, that immeasurable greatness of power. That's what it took to rescue you. That's how bad your situation was. That's how bad you were. And if that doesn't humble us, I don't know what will. That's how hopeless our condition was. You see, God's grace and his mercy, it's for, it's, the old hymn writers would use words like wretch. We don't use the word wretch very much. Like, I'm like, oh, I feel wretched today. I don't really say that. But the old hymn writers would say, the grace of God is for wretches, for losers, for rebels. That's humbling, isn't it? The grace of God is for people who are powerless to save themselves. 
because they were walking dead, enslaved. And that's who we all are apart from God. You know, it's funny, if you look at the second half of the book of Ephesians, I've mentioned before that the book is kind of broken up into two halves. The first part is filled with these indicatives, God saying, speaking truth about who he is and what he's done and who we are. And in the second half of the book, chapters four through six, he's, taught, he's giving us imperatives, that is instructions, what you need to do in light of who he is and who we are and what he has done. When we get to the second half of the book of Ephesians, we start looking at those imperatives, those commands. Look at the very first one that God gives us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Very first instruction for you as a Christian, in light of everything that God's done for you, in, in light of all the ways that he has displayed to you his power and his mercy, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay, what does it look like to walk in a way worthy of all this? With all humility. It's the very first command in Ephesians is be humble. Walk humbly and gent- with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If we've been the recipient of all this powerful grace, if we've been the one that's, ones that have been shown all this mercy, doesn't it make sense that we should walk humbly with one another? Gently with one another? Patiently with one another? Because we know that the guy next to you is no worse a wretch than you are. He's no worse. He's, he's, you're in much need of grace as he or she is. If we're able to look down on others and, and I think we all have to admit that we are able to look down on others. It's because we haven't fully grasped the immeasurable richness, the mercy of God. We haven't really grasped this grace and that allows us to, to look down. But the, the standards that we use to measure ourselves up against each other, they don't make sense to God. They're meaningless in God's kingdom and his Economy, you know, all the things that we kind of value and we, we use to kind of look down on others, whether it's our intelligence or it's wealth or it's our abilities or it's our looks or maybe it's even something as, as, as our race or our accomplishments. All those things mean nothing with regard to how we relate to God and, and they can't mean anything with regard to how we relate to one another because if you are in Christ, then you are a sinner saved by grace. And to know the power of God is to live in the light of this. That you were and you are, just as I was and I am, in need of his constant grace. He's the workman. We are the workmanship, as James pointed out earlier. He's the craftsman. We're the result of his handiwork, the result of his workmanship. So who gets credit? The workman, right? He gets the credit. There's a, there's a story in the Gospel of John about how Jesus brought his friend Lazarus back from the dead. Now you can bet from the, from the day that, Jesus was, that Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, for the rest of his life, he must have been known as the guy that Jesus raised from the dead, right? He, must, he was known. In fact, people wanted to kill him because they wanted to stop all this news spreading that Jesus had raised him from the dead. I don't know if he had, maybe he was fine with that, going through life, just being, I'm the guy that Jesus raised. Maybe he felt kind of bothered by it. Like, you know, I've got, you know, I've got other things going on in my life. You're, all you seem to care about is the fact that Jesus raised me from the dead. I've got my own interests and, and you know, accomplishments. 
It doesn't matter. He was always going to be known as that person. Same is true for us, guys. That's where we find our identity. If we have been the recipients of God's power and he has made us alive in Christ, that's where we find our identity, his workmanship. Created in him. We're meant to live with security, with humility, and the last thing, we're meant to live with repentance. We're meant to live with repentance. Look at the very last verse here, verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, hand, that we should walk in them. I said before that when we were living according to our own desires, we didn't realize it, but we're actually following a master. A master who hates us and wanted to see us ruin ourselves. But now, according to this, we're now following another master. Following someone else now. Following God himself. And he calls us to obey him. He calls us to follow him as master. And in doing so, to do these good works that he has prepared for us beforehand. My job, your job, is simply to walk in, carry out the good works that God has made us for. And that requires ongoing repentance. Ongoingly saying, no, I'm not going to follow that master. I'm not going to... I'm not the person I used to be, and I'm not going to follow the master who used to run things in my life. Instead, I'm going to follow my new master, the one who created me, gave me new life, the one who's given me, made me alive in Christ. I'm going to follow him. Ongoing repentance. That's the way we're meant to live. Not out of fear that we might lose our place in God's kingdom as much as, as, a, as a reasonable response and a, and a, and a love a response of love and gratitude. You know, Martin Luther, the old reformer, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Do you believe that? That your entire life is a series of repentance over and over and over again? Not, I don't mean by repentance. I don't mean by doing bad things and then saying, I'm sorry, God. I don't mean that. I mean a constant, ongoing turning away, turning away and turning towards Jesus. Rejecting lies and believing the truth that God speaks to you. That's what God's called us to. A constant turning away from sin and trusting the good news that Jesus saves sinners and knowing that his power is at work in you to do that. Guys, it took the immeasurable riches of God's grace to rescue us. So if you sit here as a child of God, you can say this with full confidence. I have experienced the power and the grace of God. I want more of it. I want to know more of it. But don't don't neglect and don't forget what you have already experienced. It took the immeasurable riches of God's grace to rescue you. You know, I'm, I'm often... I often realize that although I believe that, I am prone at times to view that grace that God has shown me as if it was cheap. Do you have this tendency to do this sometimes in your life? 
I mean, I know it's, it's free, right? It comes to us free, and when something comes as free, we tend to start thinking that it must not be worth a whole lot because it was free. But God says, no, don't cheapen this grace. It's free to you, but it's extremely costly to him. It cost him everything. It cost him his son. He calls us not to cheapen it. We che- Remember I said, I said look, we, we are called to live, in light of all this, we are called to live with, hu- with security, with humility, and with ongoing repentance. And when we fail to live in that way, I really believe that we're cheapening God's grace. When I fail to do that, I'm really cheapening God's grace. Because I cheapen God's grace when I think that, look, I can't have security. I, I need to work harder if God's going to accept me. I know he's, I, yeah, I know about all that great stuff, but if I don't obey him better, and if I don't do a better job, he's going to reject me, and he's going to stop loving me. Do you see how that's a cheapening of God's grace? It's saying, yeah, I understand God's grace, but I need to work hard in order to make up for the... No, God's grace is sufficient. Sufficient. But I also cheapen God's grace when I think that I don't need that grace. Like, I fail to be humble. I start to think, well, I can... I can kind of take care of myself, and I can obey God's law, and I can do a pretty good job, and I'm a pretty good person. And when I start to live that way, I realize I'm cheapening God's grace again, aren't I? Just on the other end, I'm still doing it. Or when I think that because God has given me his, his grace and he's revealed this immeasurable mercy towards me, I start to think it doesn't matter how I live. I don't really need to obey him because I'm secure. I don't need to obey him. What have I done? I've cheapened his grace again. And there's so many ways that we can fall off. And I'm not trying to be, you know, super scrupulous and make you think as if, you know, there's... I'm not trying to, to make following Christ more complicated than it has to be. All I'm saying is this. If Christ, if God's grace towards us is free and yet costly, then the way we respond to it in gratitude is by saying, I'm secure in your love. I'm humbled by your love. I will continue to repent of my sins and come back and believe in what you have done for me and seek to obey you by the power that you are working in me. So let's celebrate God's power in us and let's ask him to show us more of it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are kind to us and that you have rescued us even when we are dead in our trespasses. Lord, the message is so simple and if I've I've complicated it, Forgive me, and I pray that you would clarify things in these folks' minds so that they will see simply this, that you, by your power and by your grace, are able to rescue sinners like us. Help us to live in the light of your power. In Jesus' name, amen.